Well, let's take our Bibles this morning, and we want to turn to Matthew chapter 27. I know that's a kind of an unusual place that we look uh, at Christmas time, but remember, uh, if you have been with us before, that we've been going through the book of Matthew now for a whole year. And this time a year ago, we were preaching about Matthew 121, where it says, She shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all throughout this book, it's been a, a journey to the cross. It's been a purpose in Jesus' life. His incarnation, how he's born to a virgin, all the way through his life to the cross and to the resurrection that we'll be talking about uh, in conjunction with the incarnation next week. And as we look at this, we even understand that Jesus said in, uh, in Matthew chapter 20, we went over this where he says that the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Today, I want to look at one verse in the middle of this passage, and then we're going to look both directions to get our points and to get the explanation of the text. Because as Jesus was crying out on the cross, we know the greatest and most compassionate cries that have been made are made in desperation. Now, last week, we took part one of the cross. I said next, next week, we're going to take part two. Last week, we talked about the humiliation and the shame upon Jesus as he was dying on the cross. He died there naked. And we talked about the significance to that. You remember the story I, I shared with you about Angels with Dirty Faces, the 1938 movie starring James Cagney and Pat O'Brien. Very classic film. And uh, the character played by James Cagney, uh, Rocky Sullivan, grew up to be a gangster while the uh, part played by Pat O'Brien, he grew up to be a priest. But both of them grew up together. Same neighborhood. They were best friends growing up. And finally, it gets to the end of Rocky's life. And Rocky is not only a gangster, but he's the main gangster in the city. He's the hero of all the kids because he's such a tough guy. And so all the kids are worshiping him. And at the same time, the priest is trying to reach these same young boys for Jesus. But he just can't do it because they just, they just admire Rocky so much. So Rocky gets caught. He gets put in jail. Trial goes on. He's going to be um, executed by the electric chair the very next day. Well, his lifelong friend, played by Pat O'Brien, the priest, goes and talks to uh, Rocky. And he says, Rocky, I've got one request of you, one favor to ask. And he said, what is it? He says, I want you to die a coward. And he said, what? I'm not going to die. I've lived brave all my life. I've, I've spit in the face of uh, the law all my life. I'm going to go out like I came in. I'm not going to die yellow. He says, no, you don't understand, Rocky. I want you to have a courage, but a courage that only you, me, and God's going to know about. Because if you go out in glory, then those young boys that I'm dealing with will live and die in shame because they're going to follow you. But if you go out in shame as a coward, yeller, as they put it, then the boys have a chance to live a glorious life. Well, he said no, but when he got there, as the story goes, he began to, to throw a, really a, a fit and, and just yelling and screaming for his life and help me, I don't want to die, I don't want to die. And the reporters got a hold of that. They put it in the newspapers and the boys, kind of, boys all kind of denounced Rocky Sullivan. He said, well, I'm not in that good story, but I'm not in that story. Yes, we are in that story. Because Jesus Christ went to the cross, and in his humiliation, what he did was exchange his glory. The glory 
not only that he had from heaven, but the glory that he had here. I mean, after all, what was his reputation? He was a healer. He was compassionate. He could do anything. Raise somebody from the dead. And now he's dying in shame without a whimper, without anything, no miracles at all. He sacrificed his glory so we would not have to die in shame. Shame of our own sin. If he had come down off the cross the way all the mockers wanted him to come, you and I would still be in a lost condition. But the humiliation is just not enough. There also must be a sacrifice of, of life, of blood. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And so not only does there have to be a humiliation at the cross, but actually a physical suffering at the cross as well. And we look at that this morning, beginning in verse 45. And as we do, I want to look at one verse. In fact, let me look at the one right before that just to set it up. Verse 45. <clears throat> now the sixth hour, there was darkness <clears throat> all over the land until the ninth hour. <clears throat> Excuse me. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry from the cross. We're going to be looking at this cry, and I want to look at three words. The cry, I want to look secondly at the why, why God have you forsaken me, and the my, my God. First of all, as we look at the suffering of Christ, we see the cry speaks to the suffering, the actual suffering at the cross. He cried out with a loud voice. Now, this means a scream, a screech. Now, you think to yourself, man, why'd they put that in there? Well, that's a good question. I believe just because it's in there, it's just another small proof that it's true, that it happened. I mean, after all, if you were going to, to start a new religion based on one particular individual, you'd want to make him out to be a hero. Someone that could do anything and everything and never have a whimper. I mean, you look in the Bible and look, look at Stephen in Acts chapter 8. He was just looking up to heaven as he was being stoned to death, just giving glory to God. We, see, we, we find all kinds of missionaries killed on the mission field, and they died with such courage. But here we find the biblical writers actually writing this down. He screamed out. He screeched, which means that's probably a point of truth. But let's look at the physical suffering. Often, this is called the Passion Week. Now, when we think about passion, we think about what? Calvin Klein, you know, romance, you know, a little perfume. Uh, love, you know, is in the air. Passion. But actually, the word in the Latin comes from the word suffering. And so this was the week of the passion. This was a week of the suffering. And when you think about it, there's always suffering in love in some way. Well, let's look back in verse 32. As we read these verses very quickly last week, let's look at them again. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. Why? Well, he was so weak. He was beaten already. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means a place of a skull, the same place in the Latin is Calvary, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink it. And then they crucified him. That's it. 
They crucified him. Oh, they begin to, to describe that crucifixion, right? No, they, they really didn't do that at all. Because the, the original readers of this book of Matthew understood exactly what a crucifixion really was. The most humiliating, suffering death of all. Already, Jesus has been scourged 39 times. And the scourge was done with a whip, with a, some kind of metal pole or wooden, usually wooden pole, with leather straps going out from it and little bone, pieces of bone or metal at the end of those leather strips. And they would hit a man with his back and over and over again that those nine pieces of metal or bone would dig into his back, sometimes stabbing him and actually dragging it down. So he'd already been through this. He'd already been beaten. He'd already made to, uh, nailed, made to carry his cross part of the way. He was naked and placed on a, on a cross beam and probably died actually of not being able to breathe. Oftentimes, you would find people who died on the cross not from bleeding to death, but simply from suffocation. Because as the, the nails were in your hands and your feet, there was nothing to hold you up but those nails. And you would lift yourself up because you couldn't breathe. And when you did, everything would tear more and more and hurt more and more. And sometimes, many times, they, they were sitting up there and they couldn't breathe. Philip Keller, in his book, says this. Jesus was stretched out, prostrate on the cross beams, with the ominous sound of iron on iron, the nails pierced his flesh, blood spurted from the wounds, and the spikes sank into the tough wood. He writhed in pain. Then his feet were laid flat on the wood with his legs drawn up. Two more terrible spikes did their dreadful work. Like the thousands of other lambskins stretched in the mid-morning sun that day, so the Son of God lay stretched beneath the burning skies of Judea. God's Passover lamb was there for all to see. It was the most ghastly altar upon which any human sacrifice had ever been offered. God, very God, hanged there suspended between heaven and earth as the supreme substitute. That's what Jesus did for you. That's how he proved his love for you. And without that, even with the humiliation, salvation for us and a relationship with God was just simply not going to take place. But there was more than just the humiliation, that mental suffering, more than the physical suffering, but there was also a spiritual suffering as well. I want you to notice in this verse, it says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken. That's pretty tough. Why have you abandoned me, God? Why have you just gone away from me? If you remember, a few weeks ago, we went through the Garden of Gethsemane and that message on the garden where Jesus, the night before his death, would walk in, walked into the Mount of Olives, the Garden of Gethsemane, and three of the disciples were with him, and he said, sit here and pray while I go and pray myself. We're going to watch and pray. And so he goes in, and he's immediately kind of like struck down. He was awed by something. And he dropped to his knees and says, Oh, God, if this cup of wrath can pass from me, I pray it will be so. What happened to him? What was going on? And we looked through Scripture and found out that what was going on, he was getting a glimpse, a touch of God, the Father, abandoning him. What became a fear at that time? And, of course, he left the garden at total peace. 
God, not my will, but your will be done. But now the fear had become a reality. And at this moment in time, when he screamed this out on the cross, the Father in heaven abandoned him because that was the very time, the moment in time that he took on your sin and mine on the cross. And God, the Bible says God cannot stand to look upon sin. So he was abandoned. Now, you may have been abandoned at some point before. You may have been left. And there's nothing worse than having someone to leave you, I'm sure. L loneliness, in fact, is being called now the number one problem in America and the number one fear. We have solitary confinement in our prisons today because people, uh, it's punishment to be alone by yourself. But I share with you that no one has ever felt abandonment like Jesus felt abandonment. Because the sense of whether you feel abandoned or not and the extent of what you feel abandoned has to do with your relationship with someone. If you're pretty good friends and they move off, no big deal. But boy, if it's your spouse, one of your children, your parent, suddenly you feel the weight of abandonment. But at the same time, whether we realize it or not, we're always in the presence of God. We always have God there. I, I share with you today that for the first time in history, and the only time in history, there was a man, Jesus Christ, who was totally abandoned by God. The only one. You can say, well, I've been through financial, uh, man, I've been through financial ruin. I don't know why God didn't come through for me. My family, I prayed for this, I prayed for that. You've never been in a situation where God was not there. Jesus was in a position where God was not there. Listen to Psalm 22. It says in verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He said, wow, that sounds familiar. You see, David wrote this psalm years and years and hundreds of years before. And most of David's psalms were about that time and usually about him and the struggles that he was going through. But this one was what we call a messianic psalm and really is a prophetic psalm. It was something about Jesus that would happen years and years before. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy and thrown the praises of Israel in you, our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were rescued. And you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Uh, Lord, I want to remind you that even those that left you, you did not put them to shame. When they repented, you took them back. But I am a worm, he says, and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. Here's what Jesus was feeling. When he was abandoned by the Father. All who see me mock me. We talked about that last week. It looks like we're reading out of Matthew when it says, They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Never has anyone gone through anything like this before. He did this for you, abandoned by the Father. Why did he scream out? Because he was abandoned by the Father. And it didn't help. The next few verses where it says this, many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. 
they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Who are the bulls of Bashan? They're demons. Demonic forces were attacking him while he was on the cross, and they were doing it through people, by the way. The bulls of Bashan. We can see a totally, total separation from God. Now we ask the question, why? Why did Jesus go through all this? The humiliation and the physical suffering and the spiritual suffering of being abandoned by his father. Well, he did it for us, but the why here reveals the purpose of the cross. Look back in verse 46. He says, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? Well, we just read a verse a few moments ago. Matthew 121, the whole purpose, if you'll bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Physically, he died in our place. The Bible says again, life of the flesh is in the blood. He poured out the blood. And so his purpose for coming to this earth was to die for all the heinous things that you and I have ever done. So, man, that's a rough way to put it. You see, you're right because, and I did that on purpose, because in our day and age, it's just not good. It's not influential to call somebody a low-down, no-good sinner, right? Right? Are you with me at all? Are you, are, are you here? Are these just people like mannequins or something in them? We've said, hey, let's don't talk to me about guilt. Don't call me guilty. In fact, you shouldn't call somebody guilty. Somebody says, you know, what you should do is encourage them to be the person they need to be and don't worry about the guilt. W.H. Auden said something happened to us in the 20th century. And basically, you know, for lack of a better term, religion, the God of religion died in the 20th century. And he's, he's probably right. Because the God of religion, what is religion? Religion says this. If you do good, God will bless you. If you do bad, God will curse you. No wonder you're in the position you're in. Look what you've done. No wonder that person's blessed. Look, look what a good life they've lived. But then World War I came along. And then World War II. Well, I did good and I, I lost a son. And then the Korean War and the Vietnam War and so forth. And then recessions came along. What about the last recession that we had? You know, that is something in the past that has drawn people to God. The Great Depression drew people. It's like a, re a little mini revival going on. People coming back to church and coming back to the ways of God. That recession pushed people away from God. Why? Because the God of religion died in the 20th century. Look, God... You said if I gave you money, and I gave money to the church, you'd bless me. Well, why the recession? If I did good, you'd bless me. If I did good, my children would do this and back and forth. He said, no, I can't trust God. The God of religion died, and it's a good thing because now the God of relationship can permeate our hearts, can penetrate it. Because it's not about the do's and the don'ts. It's about the grace of God and his death upon the cross and what he did for us. In fact, Mark Twain uh, is supposedly, supposedly, Mark Twain used to have a dream where he would have a giant Bible 
resting on him. And he'd wake up, and he wouldn't really wake up. He just dreamed he, he would wake up. And his bones were being crushed by this Bible. Why? Because he felt guilty. Now, here's the problem. Even though I, I could say to you today, hey, look, don't worry about it. Don't feel guilty about it. You know, you don't have to ask forgiveness. don't have to come to the cross. God understands. It's okay. A lot of preachers are doing that. Here's the problem. You go out feeling pretty good about yourself, but the guilt is still there. The guilt is still, the feelings of guilt are in your subconscious mind, and they tell on us every day. It's not that we ought to ignore the guilt. We've got to do something about it. Jesus, we couldn't, but Jesus could. He came and died on the cross. The Bible says, for all have sinned and, short, and, and come short of the glory of God. It says, but God shows his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Listen, guilt is evidence of something. It's evidence that there, you believe that there's an authority beyond you. When we feel guilty, what we're saying is, I answer to more than just myself. There's a greater being somewhere that I'm going to answer to, and Jesus had the answer. Look down with me in, in the next few verses, verse 47. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. Now, they didn't have a clue what was going on. One man had once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. Hey, look, we want to see a miracle here. We want to see something great. You know, come down off the cross now. Hey, I, maybe Elijah's going to do it for him. He's come down before, and we heard that. We heard, we heard Elijah and Moses came down and visited with Jesus. Maybe it's him coming. Looking for some kind of miracle. Here's what happened in verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He died. What, did he, what was he saying with a loud voice? Well, in John chapter 19 and verse 30, here's what it says. When Jesus had received the sour wine, remember what we just read, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What did he say? It's finished. The abandonment is over. The payment for the sin is over. I feel like the sin is not on me anymore. It's finished. I've paid the debt. That's exactly what it means. It is finished, comes from the Greek word, tetelestai, which means the debt has been paid. That's what he's done for us. He's paid the debt on the cross. God placed our sin upon him, and then he placed his righteousness in us as we receive him as our Savior and Lord. What was he doing here? What was the purpose to all this? That our sins would be wiped away. As far as the east is from the west, that God would remember our sins against us no more. That's what it's all about. It's not about ignoring the guilt. It's about dealing with it. And Jesus Christ dealt with it. Well, lastly, I want to see the mind speaks of the power of the cross. What did he have the power to do? Well, the power to forgive sin. We've already talked about that. By canceling out the record of debt that stood against us with all its legal demands, then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. But there's also a power here to reconcile us to God, to bring us back to God. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And this is a pretty significant verse. Kind of, we kind of go by that, but remember, we said that the book of Matthew was written to a Jewish audience, and the Jews really understood this. 
Because in the Old Testament, it started out with a tabernacle, but the, the plan was the same at the temple. And the tabernacle and the temple both had an outer court. And the Gentiles, the non-Jews, could come to the outer court. Then they had the inner court. Only the Jews could come there. Then you had the holy place. Well, that was reserved for the priests only. But then behind this curtain, this veil, was the holy of holies. And behind the veil was the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat. And the high priest would go behind the curtain one time, one time a year. That's it. Sprinkle blood on the mercy seat, and then he would leave. The, the blood of the mercy seat from the goat, from a goat, a scapegoat, would, would forgive the sins of Israel for the coming year. Now, what did they do? Well, they tied a rope around the priest, his waist, and then he goes behind the curtain. Why did they do that? Because anyone who touched the ark would die immediately. That actually happened one time, in the, not, to a, not to, uh, behind the veil, but happened when they were moving the ark of the covenant. One man wanted to steady the ark as it was falling. He touched it, meant good, meant well. He touched it, and he died immediately. Why? Because no one had access to God. No sin can enter into God's presence. God was cut off from us. Had to go through prophets and priests and couldn't have any access ourselves. The priest would tie a rope around his waist because if he got around there and actually accidentally touched the ark, he would die. The rest of the priests couldn't go and get him, so they'd pull him out. What happened? When Jesus died on the cross, the Bible says the veil was torn from top to bottom, torn by the hand of God. It was the thickness of my hand. And they would tear it. God just tore it apart. What was it signifying? The Jews knew exactly what that meant. And they, they were amazed by it. You know if they, as they read that, oh, I, how can I even believe that? I can, for, I can see maybe God forgiving my sins. I'm used to that. I've heard that. Jesus talked about that. But now I have access to God all the time, 24-7, because Jesus Christ lives in my heart. The veil was torn now. The book of Hebrews tells us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus Christ, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. You and I, not only forgiveness of our sins, but reconciled to God. You see, our relationship now, our relationship with God that we could never have before. Listen to, uh, let me just read this verse to you in Matthew 1. It says, it says, right after he says, he saved his people from his sin. All this took place to fulfill the Lord was spoken by the prophet. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son that shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. There it is. There's the message of Christmas. That we, Jesus would die for our sins, that God would be with you by receiving Christ into your life, a new Lord of your life, Jesus sitting on the throne of your life. Well, not only that, but also I want us to see there's a power to resurrect us. We'll look at this next week a little bit closer, but look in verse 52. The tombs were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the tombs. After his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Man, wouldn't you know that was something? The people being raised from the dead. 
and walking out among the people. A resurrection, pointing to the resurrection of the future. But then I want you to notice <clears throat> real quickly the last thing, and that is there's a the power here to change lives. In verse 54, and when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and took place, they were filled with awe. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. Now, centurion was a leader of a hundred soldiers since the word century, centurion. And he, I don't know whether he was the one that actually nailed Jesus' hands and feet to the cross or not, but he probably gave the order. And he was watching Jesus. He was watching over the entire thing. I mean, after all, you don't want anybody to, to storm the crosses. And so he's noticing things. Not a word was spoken when he put the nails through his hands and feet. The only thing that was spoken was seven words on the cross, and only one of them was a scream. Something about God forsaking him. Wow, if God would forsake this, what about me? What about me? And he was looking, he had to be thinking, a darkness through the land for three hours in the middle of the day from 12 to 3 in the afternoon. There's something going on here. Something is happening. And here was a Roman centurion who made the confession of Jesus Christ. Truly, he's the Son of God. A changed life. The greatest word that we can ever give the Christians is a changed life. When Jesus, in fact, next week, we're going to be talking about Jesus handing the baton of ministry to the next generation, to the disciples. He was going to be gone. He was not going to be there anymore. And he was saying, look, you know, I'm handing this baton over to you. And the greatest thing that you need to share with people is how your life has been changed. How your life has been totally altered because of the confrontation because the relationship with Jesus Christ has changed. How about you? How about you? Now, we can sometimes talk about, well, Jesus has come into my heart. But sometimes I wonder, why don't, why don't we see the changed lives? You know, I look and I'm not trying to be critical of anything. I'm, I'm just saying an observation. Sometimes we look at social ministry, for example, as something that we, we not only need to be doing and we do, but we have to be doing it. We're not even the church. That's, that's the job of the church. You know, last week we gave away a lot of stuff called Come and Get It. And the uh, poor people in our neighborhood, the needy people in our neighborhood, came and got things that you, you gave. We're, we're giving shoeboxes here to kids in Haiti. We're doing social ministry. But there's a crying out now of a generation saying, if you don't do this, you're not a church because this is the job of the church. But it's not the main job of the church. The main job of the church is to share the gospel. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. He is the way to heaven. And he can change your life now by receiving him. Not just on the outside stuff, but on the inside. That really is. Why, why aren't we doing that? And subconsciously, I tell you this. I believe the biggest reason why we're not. And the biggest reason why people are saying, hey, if you're not doing this social ministry, then you're not really a church, is because in times past, there were always in a church trophies of grace. 
There were people, teenagers, adults, that had such a changed life that it was just undeniable. Look at this, and somebody get up and share their testimony and have a, the thrill of God in their heart. Look how I've changed. Look at my life. And sometimes I think that we think becoming a Christian just means I'm going to be a better person. I'm going to be nice. I'm going to be kind. Be a nicer person. And I'm going to do things for people. Never mind the fact that I was a sinner. I was separated from God. I had no hope. But when Jesus Christ came into my life, he gave me, an, I, I had a new God. And my life was changed. And I'm here sharing my own testimony with, but the supernatural, the, super, the undeniable life. Are we living that? Or can everything in our life be explained easily by someone looking from the outside in? There's a song written by Bill Gaither years ago. I'll quote some of that to you as a close. Today I went down to the place I used to go. Today I saw the same old crowd I knew before. And when they asked me what had happened, I tried to tell them, thanks to Calvary, I don't come here anymore. Thanks to Calvary, I'm not the man I used to be. Thanks to Calvary, things are different than before. And as the tears ran down my face, I tried to tell them, thanks to Calvary, I don't live here anymore. Then we went down to the house where we used to live. My little girl ran behind the door like so many times before. And I said, honey, you don't have to be afraid. You've got a new daddy now. Thanks to Calvary, I don't live here anymore. Changed life. Greatest testimony in the world. And the, and, and the end result... The end result, really, of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. What about you today? What about you? Maybe you're a believer today and you say, you know, I remember that, I remember that time. I remember that time where, man, the passion of Christ, was, the love of Christ was in my heart. Well, I just couldn't, I couldn't wait to tell somebody about him or just, just, I just trust him with everything in my life. But those days are gone. I've been beat up by life. I long for those days again. Or maybe there's someone here today. You've never trusted Christ as your Savior and Lord. And you have not maybe seen a lot of that supernatural life from other people. I just share with you, don't look at us. Look at Jesus. The author and finisher of our faith. Who put aside the shame and went to the cross and died there, giving his life as a ransom for you. That's how much he loved you. And if he loved you that much to die for you, he'll love you that much to live through you after you receive Christ. Thanks for listening. You can find more sermons and other information at crosslifechurch.com.